Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today we're discussing how to handle solutions journalism stories with one of the top authorities on the subject. David Bornstein is an acclaimed author and journalist. Many will know him as the co-creator of the New York Times column, The Fixes, which was launched in 2010 with Tina Rosenberg, an opinion writer for The Times. The Fixes highlighted stories of people who were trying to solve problems in society, and it was hugely popular amongst its readers. Just to name a few, topics ranged from education system reform to hospital safety to voting turnout. But last month, the column closed down after 11 years. David also co-founded the Solutions Journalism Network later in 2013, a non-profit organisation which trains and connects journalists in the field of solutions journalism. So today, we look at the fixes, some of the highs and lows, the breakthrough stories, and the lessons learned along the way. Listen on for tips on how to get your newsroom and reporters acquainted with solutions journalism, and in doing so, increase trust and engagement with your readers. All of that's coming up after a quick word about the sponsor of today's episode. This journalism.co.uk podcast is supported by Memberful, which is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience. You can monetize your fantastic newsletters through Memberful with no need to connect to a third-party email provider. Try it for free on memberful.com, where you can also take up pro and premium plans to really start cranking up and customizing your membership offering. David. Welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. David, um, how's work going? How's this crazy remote work situation going for you at the moment? What does work look like for you? Yeah, um, we have been working remotely for a long time with many of our staff, but it's been very hard because we've grown a lot in the last couple of years. um, And many of our staff have not come together in person. So it's For me, the the hardest part of this has been working with colleagues that I've literally never met other than through through Zoom and through phone calls. We work hard and we've grown fast and anyone who's in the news business is is right up front facing a lot of the hard stuff in the world. And that lack of direct contact is something that everyone's really feeling, including myself. Yeah. The big news for you personally, of course, David, is that you're um, after 11 years, closing down the fixes uh, the column that you've been doing for the new york times uh, for for such a long time can you bring us up to speed on on the kind of work you've been doing with that column yeah sure so the column was was my partner tina rosenberg's uh, idea she had worked there for for quite a number of years um, in the editorial page and had also done a lot of articles for the times magazine basically the fixes column was a reported column that looked at responses to social problems and what we could learn from what was working and what wasn't working. Um, it, it preceded the Solutions Journalism Network. It started in 2010. And both Tina and I had been journalists for you know two and a half decades at that point. We had both covered a lot of issues globally, international development issues, global health was, Tina's, was an area that Tina focused on a lot. And both of us realized that some of the stories we wrote that looked at emerging ideas to address poverty or to address health, in her case, a story she wrote about HIV, um, that really helped shape the conversation by showing what these sort of positive deviants they can get into uh, were up to. (laughs) The shortest or simplest way to put it is we know that journalism 
can often be used and should often be used to mobilize a sense of urgency or even outrage against the world's problems and suffering. Uh, but it can also be used to cross-pollinate ideas and to advance learning. Um, and if you look at the the left end of the curve of distribution, you'll find the worst actors. And if you look at the right end of the curve, you'll find the most creative actors. And if you put together outrage and learning, um, you get change. And so our theory was to sort of tell, round out the story. And that's why our tagline became the whole story for the Solutions Journalism Network. Going back to 2010 for a second here, how radical was this idea for the time? It was pretty, you know, we really didn't think the Times would go for it. There was, we couldn't find another example of a reported column in a, in a sort of a major newspaper that was doing this on a regular basis. Um, but, you know, it, it ended up in the Times opinion section, just because those were the relationships that um, Tina had worked in that. And of course, there's a lot more elbow room in opinion. Um, as the idea has evolved, solutions journalism has evolved, it's, it's clear that it's a news it's a news. I mean, you can. There are newspapers now that have really changed their editorial sections to incorporate or integrate solutions journalism. But we think it it's very hard news. It's just as hard as reporting on problems, reporting on how people are trying to solve problems, is as serious as why people are causing them. Looking back on the last eleven years, can you plot like the last the sort of engagement with the fixes over the last eleven years? particularly at the beginning like did you hit the ground running with it or was it kind of a slow uptake with the with audiences given that this was you know as you said a bit of a radical change for for the times yeah i mean right at the outset we saw that we were onto something i mean i think the second or third columns that we wrote we were already hitting sort of the most what used to be called the most emailed list which was the way authors uh, or, or journalists could gauge how their stories were being shared online. The most emailed list at that time, people forwarded things through email. Then there was the most Facebook list and all that. But the thing that surprised us, and our editor pointed this out very early on when he said, you know, there are certain issues that never make the most emailed list, no matter how important the stories are, whether it's foster care or malaria or uh, child trauma or other things like that. Um, and he was surprised and we were surprised to see that when dealing with a, a difficult subject, a subject where where it's, it's, it's very easy for the reader to say, oh, it's too much. I don't feel like getting into that. You know, the coming into a story like that with um, an on-ramp saying, here's an example of a place that is trying to solve this problem. It certainly has not solved this problem, but here's some light that we can shed on um, on something that's at least getting better results than the norm. For some reason, that was that gave people kind of like a, um, a handle to be able to get into the story, and maybe some emotional, more emotional space to deal with it. Because you know, you as you know, news avoidance is on the rise. I mean, you've written about it yourself, and it's it's very much about the capacity, how much capacity people have to be able to take in what's going on in the world today. Was there um? particular column a particular turning point where you could really start to see buy-in from from the audience on this on this concept on this column i did a column on a math program in canada it was called jump math um i don't remember when i did the first what year it was but it's pretty early on but it was interesting for me because the column maybe it was a few years in um it looked at 
these really core beliefs that we have about math and people, many, many people believing that I'm just dumb in math. I just can't do math. I don't have the math gene or something like that. Me. <laughs> and, and this is really common. And, you know, you, you, can, you can connect this to the, the mortgage crisis and all these people who were bamboozled by, you know, wheeler dealers. But what uh, this program, Jump, which was founded by a guy named John Mighton in Canada, who is also a Governor General award-winning playwright, which is quite interesting, um, was really grounded on the idea that we, don't we really don't scaffold kids enough and we teach math to them in a way that these hierarchies in their mind develop, hierarchies of talent develop very early on. And he was able to show really persuasively with some examples in Canada and in England, you can break these hierarchies, um, but you have to teach math in a way that, that really allows people to, um, you need to scaffold success. You can't go too quickly, especially in the fundamental stages. You really have to build it block by block. And so he gave examples of how to do that. The column was just wildly popular. It was on the most, I think it was the most Facebooked or emailed for weeks um, because it's such a pain point for so many people. Mm. So many people have kids for whom it's a pain point and so many teachers have students for whom it's a pain point. And you could just see how there's this, this idea that was quite, um, it really, really touched a lot of people. And um, it was very moving to me to see the, the way that you can, um, we all have self-limiting ideas, right? And our self-limitations are the ones that only we can deal with. But to help people sort of see possibilities on the horizon for their lives. And then there was evidence. You know, there was pretty good evidence. It wasn't slam dunk evidence, but it was. they had very suggestive evidence that this was growing and working. Awesome. When did the column peak? When was it really at its, you know, highest point, you think? You know, we. I think we were really sort of hitting our stride, you know, couple of years ago and then what happened with the network is is um it grew so quickly like we've really really grown a lot in the last three years and not t both tina and i have had less time to do the column and we started assigning columns to other writers and really the majority of columns in recent years were shared with a variety of writers and we really wanted to to invite in um younger journalists and other journalists from around around the world to contribute to it um, and at the same time, the Times opinion section, you know, the way who gets placement and on the homepage and all that stuff and the role of social media was really changing. So I would say we probably could have adapted to a more multimedia format earlier. And I think we probably peaked with, I think the world probably peaked with long lines of text <laughs> a number of years ago and, and, yeah. and the capacity of people to absorb lots of words has has shrunk you, you say that but newsletters have really sort of had a comeback haven't they and become such a focal point for, for news organizations it's um yeah I'm, I'm not sure we're past the point of of text we've i think it's more of a question of medium and delivery yeah i think you're right we could have been more innovative on the on the medium and delivery and we had we definitely had some ideas for newsletters and that may have happened um but you know the main thing that we saw was to make the case for what we were trying to do, which was to show solutions journalism is a credible thing. It's a legitimate form of journalism. Uh, we really needed ultimately to be working in, new, in, in the news section and to have the work happen in the in news sections. And that was happening a lot 
uh, a lot more through the Solutions Journalism Network. Right, right. We're delighted that you know the Times is is doing it too. The Times does a lot of Solutions Journalism. Cool. Um, what other highlights can you can you think of over the last eleven years? Any other favorite columns that you can pick out for us? Yeah, I I had a personal interest um, when I learned about the role of what, what became known as the ACE study, the study that looked at adverse childhood experiences um, and the the inroads that were being made in the treatment of child trauma around the United States and, and, and in other countries um, through this research where they were able to show that many, many children, a uh, lot more than people realize, especially if you look at um, you know, communities where there has been historically a lot of racism, um, a lot of poverty, um, have had these experiences that that really hit very heavily on them when they're quite young. And you can see it playing out in elementary schools, even in even in Head Start programs, daycare programs. Um, and I looked at a range of these programs over a number of years that were really showing new promise in helping children who had had these um, these traumatic experiences um, or these adverse childhood experiences. And the, you know, I got a lot of feedback that the columns, first of all, they spread very widely. They were, they were really well read when you consider that it's a very difficult subject to get into. You have to deal with a lot of, um, there's darkness in there. But at the same time, um, it was really interesting to see that movement um, and the awarenesses around ACEs to, to spread and to see how um, some of the reporting had been helpful in drawing attention to things that were quite important, but yet really weren't getting much attention in the world of education or in the world of pediatrics at the time. Mm. I think that speaks to the the opposite point to what you were saying earlier about news avoidance. Had you covered th- that particular story in the more traditional format, it's very easy to get turned off by that story. It's very hard to access it by maybe looking at it from the from the other lens, the solution lens, people just find it a bit more accessible, right? Yeah, very much. And even like the headline for one of the early stories was, uh, I think it was called Teaching Children to Calm Themselves was the headline. Fascinating, yeah. And that is a very inviting headline because mm. I'm a parent. Everyone who's been a parent knows that if your child can learn how to calm themselves, uh, especially a child who who has a lot of emotional um, intensity or vigilance, if they've had real hard experiences, you change the course of their life. I mean, if they can, you know, I remember one teacher saying to me, you, you have a, a boy in a Head Start program um, and another boy takes his block, let's say, and then he smashes him over the head with the fire truck. There were There was research saying that preschool expulsions, just say that phrase. Preschool expulsions, yeah. Preschool expulsions, four-year-olds being kicked out of preschool. I'm with you. Like you would expel a kid in high school. There was one study that suggested they were 13 times more common than high school expulsions. So what you basically have are all these four-year-olds whose behavior is very um, difficult for the (laughs) daycare programs to handle. So they just kick the kids out. What's a parent going to do at that point? I mean, and what they found is that if you attune to the child, if you help them feel safe, if you teach them skills where they can actually calm themselves down, even going sitting on a beanbag chair and, and you know, eating a crunchy snack or playing with a Velcro, these things are, were really effective in helping the children learn to re-regulate themselves. And then they would come back and say, I'm ready to come back and sit in the circle. And 
kids who never had friends, kids who didn't learn their ABCs were suddenly on the track um, of having a normal school life. Um, and, you know, that's a very powerful hinge movement in the li in life of a person. You can imagine how that change in trajectory at the age of four can change a whole life. What, what I love about that example is it gives the reader agency to actually do something with the material they're consuming, David. It's not just they've read it, boom, story's done, move on with their lives. It's actually tangible action that they can introduce into their lives in some way. So clear. Yeah. And just to add one more point, which was very interesting, was some of the, the teachers in elementary school and in, um, and in head, head Start settings said, when a child was acting this way, we used to say, now you have to go sit in the corner for like the next couple of minutes. Some cases, you know, the timeout kind of idea. And they came afterwards to say, I would never do that to a child. If I understood the child as feeling profoundly unsafe, the last thing I would do is now go sit in the corner by yourself. They suddenly realized that the, the normal way that schools handled this kind of behavior was actually making it worse. And this was... You know, I had people saying I've been an educator for 20 years. This has completely changed my my practice. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a young parent myself, and this is all just pricking my ears up completely, David. It's it's astonishing. How about the other side of the conversation? What were perhaps some of the lowlights and the challenges involved with doing the column? Yeah. So, I mean, one really uh, a horrific experience, I would say, was I was reporting on a, on a program that helps children who have had really hard traumatic experiences. Um, and I, I interviewed the mother of this child and she wanted to go use, have her name on record and she used her, her child's name, her daughter's name. And, um, and I incorporated it in the column. And then someone wrote in the comments saying, how dare you use this child's name? And, you know, even though the mother had given permission, even though all, you know, all the journalistic things were followed properly, um, I just really felt it was bad judgment. And we immediately sort of put in a, an editorial note and took out the name and, and put in a pseudonym to protect the child, which would be standard. But just I, it was a real blind spot. It wasn't didn't come to my attention until those com comments came in and then we had to fix it. But I just the thought that I had exposed um, a child to uh, to something like that, even even uh, in the brief time it was public. And then it also made me realize that, you know, there are people in the world who don't know the rules of journalism. I know the rules of journalism. And even though this mother who was in good faith wanting to tell her story and her family story because she felt it could help others, in some cases, I think journalists need to be more protective of their sources if their sources are not protective of themselves. Really interesting. Like like you point out there, you did follow the, the journalistic, you know, code of practice there, but what would you have perhaps done differently? How would you have, if you could go back, how would you have treated that situation differently? Yeah, just, I would have, you know, the, speak to the the psychologists who work with the family, speak to my editors and see, is it really, first of all, is it necessary? It wasn't really necessary. It didn't make a difference, frankly. Um, and, you know, with certain people, obviously going on the record is really important. In this case, it was, it was an example that was anonymous example was perfectly fine. Um, but I would have really just consulted with with the psychologist saying this mother is giving us permission to do this. Um, can't you really do it on behalf of the child in, to begin with? You know, that's a question I, I didn't ask, but I should have asked that question. And would you what would you recommend? And I'm sure she would have said no need. Useful advice. Thank you for that. Um, let me ask you a question just about the practice of solutions journalism more generally on, a, on an institutional level across the newsroom. 
what have you found to be some of the the lessons from doing the column some of the best practices the trick really to doing solutions journalism within a team i would say that you can never ask enough how-to questions <laughs> like it, it it really is i mean you don't realize um how much creativity or intelligence or in some cases even kind of like genius is behind the thinking in something that you can report on the results and you say this this program that is helping youths you know stay in you know graduate from high school or is helping them transition to college or whatever is getting you know 40% higher success rate than its peers so that's kind of like the that would be the the evidence you'd look for evidence about there's a differential result that's usually what we begin with is there evidence of a differential result or can you call these sort of a positive deviant which is what we call the 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 people who are doing better than the norm or at least there's there's some data or some evidence or even if it's anecdotal that suggests this is worth looking into um, for a problem that is usually widespread so once you have that the question is how and i think people tend to attribute success to individual qualities like a very good teacher or a great principal or a sort of you know we have this whole trope of sort of the the, the visionary leader of the nonprofit kind of thing um, but when you actually boil it down and you look at what are they actually doing differently what's the process how did they do this how did they get the teachers to show up to the meeting how did they actually get the curriculum um, to be adopted with some fidelity. How did they get anyone to pay for this? How did they get the unions to agree that it's all right to do it? How did they get the political people to fund it or fund the pilot or any of these how-to questions? And when you really dig into those, that's where you really begin to see what it took. And that's where the surprises emerge. And that's where you can really build curiosity or draw upon the curiosity in in the stories and we be, we came to call these columns how done it instead of like who done it right <laughs> like that because you know the who done it is such a popular genre i think detective stories are one of if not the most pop popular global storytelling modes i mean sherlock holmes all of the tv shows like house or csi they're all basically detective stories and and you stick around to figure out how are they going to crack the case you know, how are they going to save the baby? How are they going to arrest the guy or whatever? And you can tell how done it's, how are they, how did they actually figure out cracking the code on, on getting a higher graduation rate in a school that has historically been a low, low performing school? Um, you can use those same um, how done it story storytelling modes because the key with solutions journalism is that it's not about good news, right? It's about ideas. It's about learning you know it's it, these are process stories and it's really really important to um to surface insights if if those are there because it's when you surface the insights that you can then hold people accountable journalism ultimately for me is an accountability mechanism it should be holding people accountable and forcing them putting pressure on them to do better if better is possible but the first thing you have to show, one, better is possible. So that's why you need stories that highlight where success is happening. And two, a method, <laughs> something you can actually do that's different that could lead you to a better result. Once you show that to people with some 
evidence to substantiate it, it's very hard for people to ignore. And in fact, it takes away their excuses. Do you have any other favorite questions that you like to ask, which facilitate solutions journalism stories, which really open it out and help it come to be a, come to be a solutions journalism story? I think it's important for journalists when they're doing solutions journalism, or I think in any form of journalism, but it's particularly important for this. People, when they're talking to journalists, especially if they're running an organization or if they're in a government administration or if they're running a nonprofit, let's say, they only want to tell you what's good, you know, because they're worried if they get bad press, it's going to harm their organization. So everyone wants to conceal their failures and only tell you about their successes. And everyone has some failures and some successes, but you don't, you can't really understand how they were able to figure out an idea unless you understand all the failure that was behind that idea. Because that's really how you innovate. You fail forward in a sense, you know? So how do you get people to share that information? And so a lot of what I would do is explain our theory of this how-done-it theory. It is only satisfying when, when Sherlock Holmes finally cracks the case because he's been struggling with the case for the first half of the story. If he cracks it on page one, nobody's interested, right? But if you can show the struggles that you had, the low points, like you just asked me, and then, um, you know, kind of like where the breakthrough happened or where something happened, you can create a really interesting story that draws people in. And by the way, people forgive you for your failures, right? P people don't think that everyone's supposed to have the holy grail of, ed of everything all the time. I mean, people, people actually appreciate the struggle. You're actually showing this is hard work. And when you would people would hear that, they would say, well, yeah, actually there is, there are some real failures we had. We had some of our assumptions were totally wrong. And then you really begin to understand what happened, how much harder it was and why they were able to um, come up with these better insights. Like, like, you know, John Mighton, for example, the guy I mentioned before with Jump Math, he said, um, you know, I had this really you know, solid idea for how you could you could teach students um, in a classroom and and get it to the point where everyone in the classroom became proficient in math. And he said, I had lots of examples when I, but many very often when he would bring them into a large classroom, a large public school classroom, the teachers would say, I can't do it this way because if I'm slowing it down to this point, I have a whole bunch of kids who are just going to be really bored. And I don't know what to do with them. And then um, so that everyone teaches to the middle of the class, which is what standard sort of public school education is. You teach to the center 60 percent and then you have 20 percent that don't get it, that are sort of constantly a little bit behind and 20 percent that are bored and are in the olden days would have pea shooters. What John did was and this is very simple. He said he developed a whole set of bonus questions that were designed to engage the, the students who had who were quicker in math but didn't require introducing new material. And it's really important because you wanted to engage these students so they still felt challenged, but you didn't want the teacher to have to spend extra time with them introducing new material while they needed to be helping the kids who were still um, working on getting comfortable with that new stuff. And so like bonus questions became this really important technology in his whole um, theory of, of math education. And when I spoke to the teachers about it, they were like, oh, yeah, the bonus questions. If you didn't have the bonus questions, this whole thing wouldn't work because you need to be able, it's a class management issue. 
like I'm not a teacher. I never would have in a million years understood that is this really specific how-to that was really useful to the people on the ground applying this idea. David, that was super insightful. Um, I want to slightly shift gears and, and talk about an idea that came up at our user-wired conference, which was this idea of how it's perhaps useful for people who are starting out with solutions journalism to brand or label uh, their solutions journalism. They're doing it with, with the Times. You've got a specific brand here with with the fixes, you know, with the Guardian, they've got the upside, the BBC has crossing divides. Would you go along with that? Do you think it's important to signpost to your readers that this is something different to the norm, that this is something in order to get the ball moving, if you if you get where I'm coming at this? I think initially, in order to help readers see that there's another way that we're going to, we're trying to do journalism, or there's a different journalism product that we're trying to offer you, if you want to put it in those terms, um, the signposting is super important. I think the goal in the long run is to get rid of the phrase solutions journalism, and to this is just journalism. Journalism is allowed to look at how people are being negligent and incompetent and how people are being thoughtful and competent. It's allowed to look at everything uh, in equal measure. And, and a feedback system needs to have information about what's wrong, you know, what's the urgency and what we can do about it and where's the learning. Otherwise, if you don't have both of those pieces of it, it's like a doctor's appointment that is only diagnosis and the doctor never tells you what you, you know, any of your treatment options. It's just frustrating and and in fact, scary. There are real benefits in signposting solutions journalism because it, it has been associated with readers feeling that higher levels of trust, there's there's higher levels of engagement, higher levels of a sense of audience efficacy and a sense of capacity to, to deal with stories. Um, so those are things that news organizations really need now. And also dealing with the fact that we live in a world, you know, of 8 billion people where, you know, a vast majority are walking around with 24-7 information sources that are capturing at any given moment pretty much the worst thing happening anywhere in the world and telling everybody about it. I mean, if you think about that situation, it's it's a recipe for for gutting people. It's just, it's impossible to sustain that as the constant feedback system we're getting. You, you realize if uh, you integrate solutions journalism into just journalism, the solutions journalism network just becomes the journalism network, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what would you say is your main skill that has served you well in your career? I mean, I guess it's, it's um, you know, the way I listen. Yeah, I, I've I've had feedback from many people over the years after an interview um, where people have said, um, I feel like um, I heard myself for the first time. Like I could actually hear my own ideas in a way that you, in the way that you reflected them back to me. So when I'm doing interviewing with people, I'll often loop them. I didn't realize I was doing this over the years until we even had this conflict mediation <laughs> kind of complicating the narratives work that we got into. but. Oftentimes, because I've done so much work in other countries and, you know, you're often with translators. And so you're dealing with a person, you're, you're dealing with their culture, their symbolic universe. And then um, you're often dealing with a translator. Um, and so I would often repeat back to people like, so what I'm hearing is dot, 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 what you just said to me, you know, and then they would correct it. 
And then by the time you would finish the interview and you have reflected things back to people, um, they would they felt really heard. But they also sometimes said that they discovered parts of their own ideas that they hadn't thought about in the same way. So so I I felt like oh that's good that's and I've always enjoyed listening. I was I'm a basically an introvert who who has had to train himself sometimes to be an extrovert. So you attempt to summarize what they've said and give them the opportunity to correct or refine your summary. Is that right? Yeah. If I, if I feel I don't understand it or there's a translation issue, I mean, if it's a really just a straightforward thing, but if someone says something really that could be interpreted in different ways, which is like 90% of human communication, right? If you think about it, we make so many assumptions when we hear what someone says about what we, what we think they mean. Um, you know, we, we judge other people's outsides from our insides <laughs> and there's two mistakes. Yeah. On, there's mistakes on both ends. So anytime you can clarify something and, and not just like, were these the actual words that came out of your mouth? Cause that's a very simple thing to say. It's, what, it's, it's intention, isn't it? And I think this is such a pain point when people feel like their ideas are misrepresented in the, in the press, in the media. Right. So, yeah. And you know, I'm an author I've had, you know, I've written three books and every time I've written, um, these books, I have done an author's tour and I've been interviewed by journalists many times about my writing. And every single time a story came out, I would say without exception, maybe one or two, I had the feeling like that's not what I meant. They took this thing and they put it in an article and they shaped it to mean something that was quite different from what I meant. But, but it was plausible that it could have meant what they heard. And so you're getting into like now we're in a world of extreme polarization. You look at the Crossing Divide series at the at the BBC, which is a great series. There and there's the the potential to be misunderstood or misconstrued, especially in the United States around race issues or around issues that are really uh, highly emotional and highly highly um, painful for people. Um, making sure you understand <laughs> what the person is saying before you jump to your conclusion. I mean, certainly if you're going to go publish it and, you know, a million people are going to read it, really make sure you understand it because just getting the words right is, I don't think is good enough. David Bornstein, thank you so much for jumping on the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been my pleasure. A great conversation with David there, and I'm really brimming with ideas about solutions journalism. Look beyond the inspirational visionary and you will find the team who made it possible. Seek practical takeaways by asking how done it, not who done it, and put that in the context of the failures and barriers to success along the way. But ultimately, do not just present information that readers cannot do anything with. Problems without solutions lead to frustration and helplessness. The success of The Fixes came from offering readers stories with ideas that they can use in their everyday lives. If you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on the show, please drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Gringer. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.